invite you to open your bulletins then <clears throat> to page six as we'll be we'll be looking at this at this little narrative together. In short, what we have here is a is a is a story of a fearful, despairing man of God. And it's a story about how God moves this man of God, this despairing, fearful man, to a new place of living between faith and hope. I invite you to pray with me. Holy Spirit, in this broken world, we can often get stuck emotionally. We can get stuck between fear and despair. Move us like you did Samuel by the power of your word and by the hope inspired by the the anointing of your Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord, to live in this new place of faith and hope. In his name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The difference between despair and fear is like one like between the instant of a wreck and when the wreck has been. That's what Emily Dickinson wrote. And in a sense, she's right. The difference between despair and and fear is actually very narrow. It's actually milliseconds apart, only a couple moments apart because we feel fear right before the wreck. And we feel despair immediately after. And usually those two emotions of fear and despair, they're only a few seconds apart, and sometimes they're not even a few seconds apart. Sometimes we actually feel them at the same time. Sometimes we actually might be better described as the fearful despairing and in the next moment as the despairing fearful. And that's exactly where we meet the prophet Samuel. Right at the beginning of this lesson, he would best be described either as the fearful despairing or as the despairing fearful. Listen in these beginning verses as the Holy Spirit through this word of God literally bears Samuel's heart for all the public to see. This is what he records at the very beginning of this lesson. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. You can't help but notice that right away that that Samuel is in complete despair. He's mourning. I did a little thing just to help you understand a little bit more about despair. And, and for your own benefit, I looked on Google Images underneath despair. And if you look underneath despair, what you see is, is people with head in their hands. 
What you see is people curled up in, in the fetal position on the floor. What you see is people looking through gallows. What you see is people crying in deep, dark despair that results in long-term depression. And that's exactly where Samuel is. He is in complete despair. We don't know how long he was in this state. But he was in despair and in mourning for at least long enough for the Lord to come to him with an important question and him asking, how long do you plan to mourn? How long do you plan to sit there with your face and your hands curled up in the fetal position, unwilling to do anything? How long do you plan to sit in Rama depressed? It was at least that long that Samuel sat there in complete despair. And here's the weird part. Here's the the strange part. Saul wasn't dead. Samuel's He's mourning over him, but Saul isn't dead. So so Samuel must have been mourning about something else. And I think we can know why Samuel was in such complete despair. It was because Samuel was an utter failure at replacing himself. He was an utter failure, first of all, as a father. He had tried valiantly to raise his two sons to be the next rulers of Israel, to be the leadership in Israel, But his two sons turned out to be scoundrels, corrupt, who, when offered bribes, accepted them. And so when Samuel tried to retire, it didn't work because his sons were so perverted. And then the elders of Israel came to him with a different plan. We don't like your sons, Samuel, so give us a king. And so Samuel anointed a king, and when he anointed Saul as king, the first king of Israel, the anointed one, the first Messiah of Israel, it was filled, a moment filled with such hope. And in fact, this is what Samuel cried out. He said, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Those were heady days. Those were days filled with hope. Those were days filled with joy because Israel now had a messianic future. At least until the Lord rejected Saul too. And Saul's humility turned into pride. And Saul's faith turned into unbelief. And so, there Samuel sat, a complete and utter failure, and in complete despair about the messianic kingdom of Israel. So he just sat there. He sat there in Ramah, and he did nothing. Despair put him in Ramah, but it was fear that kept him there. Did you notice that? Not only was Samuel in complete despair, but he was also in complete fear. So epic was Samuel's failure at training up this next Messiah. So epic was his sin that this protege, this man that he had mentored, 
now wanted to kill him. And Samuel brings that fear before the Lord. He says, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill him. And Saul was crazy enough to do it. He was so spiritually insane that he would have killed a prophet of the Lord. And so Samuel, Samuel was completely stuck right there in between despair and fear. And there was nothing he could do about it. Emily Dickinson, she waxed eloquent about it. You heard in the poem. Samuel experienced, and if we're brave enough, we're brave enough to do a little bit of spiritual introspection, we might begin to realize that we've been there too. Sometimes, sometimes in the most inconsequential of ways. Like, like when we're gardening outside and we spend two months pulling up weeds. And then in the third month of summer we decide, I give up. The weeds are going to come back. Or sometimes in the most inconsequential of ways, like when, like when the Mets start a new baseball season. And we figure, you know what? Once again, they're going to fail us. And they're in despair before they even begin. But sometimes in the most consequential of ways, we are in despair and fear in the middle of our lives. I don't know how many middle-aged men and women I've sat with you say, Pastor, I'll never marry again. Not ever. Because men are all the same, they say. And so they despair of any kind of marital bliss in the future. And they fear going out with another man or woman. Sometimes in the most consequential of ways, we're stuck between, between fear and despair like, like when I've sat with people who are sick. And they're tired of doctors messing up the treatment. They say, Pastor, I'm done fighting against cancer. The doctors never get it right. And so, so this time, I'm just not going to do anything. They're stuck in despair, and they're too afraid to do anything about it. And then, and then there's those times when, when people say to me, you know, Pastor, I, I just don't think God can forgive my sins. My sins are too great to stand before a holy God. They are in despair over their sins and they're too afraid to come out of the pit. Sometimes in the most consequential ways, we are stuck between fear and despair. And you know what? I think these are the devil's best tools. They really are, because if the devil can get us stuck between despair and fear, then he's got his baptized people right where he wants them to be, stuck there in Rama, sitting there with their hands, their face in their hands, doing nothing. And it's only the Lord, I think that's important, it's only the Lord who persistently and insistently wakes Samuel out of this fearful, despairing state that he is in. And he does it in an interesting way. He does it through sort of a male beauty pageant. And what he's going to do is he's going to teach Samuel to replace the fear that he has 
with trust. He's going to show to Samuel that I got this. I always had a plan to give you the perfect anointed one, the perfect Messiah. And so this male beauty pageant goes something like this, and it's not too different from what Steve Harvey did. Samuel wants to crown the wrong, the wrong winner every single time. He sees the first son of Jesse trotted out, and he says, this has got to be the one. He's beautiful. He's a beautiful man. He's so tall and handsome. This has got to be the Messiah. And the Lord says, don't judge by the outward appearance. Because God looks at the heart. One son, two sons, three sons, four sons, five sons. And Jesse begins to run out of sons, six sons, seven sons. And all of a sudden, Jesse is completely out of sons. And Samuel's like, what? Do you have another son? And and Jesse says, yeah, I have one more. But he's so worthless that he's out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him in. And when, they, when he brings him in, this is what the narrator says, this description of, of, of David. Samuel's jaw literally drops on the floor. He, it says, he was ruddy. That means he was blonde and well tanned. He had a reddish appearance. With a fine appearance and handsome features. It's ironic, isn't it? God says, don't look at the outward appearance. I don't care what they look at. But the man after the Lord's own heart happens to be the Brad Pitt or the Matthew McConaughey of the ancient Middle East. Apparently, apparently, the Lord knew what He was doing the whole time. And Samuel, he's starting to get it that God is good. And although he had rejected Saul on the eighth try, literally on the eighth try, Samuel would get it right. And so God, he starts to replace this fear that Samuel had with trust. But God's not done with his work. He wants to also replace the despair that Samuel felt in his heart with the messianic hope. So verse 13, this is what the narrator says. He accomplishes this through David, his anointed one. It says there, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. What a loaded verse. What what a special verse. What a special moment for the world that, that God would anoint this beautiful, handsome man and then put His Spirit on him. The same Spirit that had given Samson the power to wreck people and that had given Saul the power to prophesy. This same Spirit now rested on And so what does Samuel do? He goes home. He goes home to Ramah, but he's not the same man anymore, is he? Now Samuel is not living in between despair and fear. Now Samuel, because of this messianic hope, 
is living right there in between faith and hope. And he hadn't even seen Jesus. He hadn't. When you think about it, when David was anointed, heaven didn't open. When David was anointed, the Holy Spirit didn't come down in the form of a dove. When, when David was anointed, the Father didn't, didn't cry out, this is my son. And yet David goes home full of faith and full of hope, and he hadn't even seen Jesus. David's greater son. Our messianic hope. See, when, when Jesus was anointed, and Luke is desperate that we get this today, when Jesus was anointed, this is unlike any other anointing that we have ever seen since or after. Heaven opens as if to say, in Adam, heaven closed because of sin. But in Jesus, heaven opens to all the baptized. When Jesus was anointed, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down in bodily form. As if to say, I approve of the incarnation of the bodily form of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't pick the form of just any old animal, like a snake or some other crow. He picks the form of a dove. Why? It's as if to say that, just like, when Noah sent out a dove after God's wrath is spent, just like that, a new era of peace between God and men has come. And, and when Jesus is anointed, the Father shouts to all the world with great pride, this is my Son. And so, if Jesus... If Samuel goes home full of faith and hope after only seeing the anointing of David, how much more so us who have seen the Christ, the Son of God, anointed through these baptismal waters? I wish that that's what Emily Dickinson would have written about. She's, she was right that the difference between fear and despair is very narrow, but I wish she would have written a poem about the difference between despair and hope and the difference between fear and faith. And I think what she would have written is that the, the difference between those two is very narrow. It's as narrow as a world with Jesus and as narrow as a world without Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's, it's as narrow as a world of people living in the shadow of death and a world of people living in the hope of the resurrection. It's as narrow as people living in the guilt of sin and people living in the shadow of the cross. It's that narrow. But she didn't write that poem. And so, in a sense... We get to write that poem with our lives. We get to write that poem because in Jesus is the hope to get up and try again. In Jesus, 
we leave the despair of sin and enter into the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, we have the hope of a bright messianic future. Hope is rising. And faith is still trusting. Amen.